All right, all right. Good morning, Emmanuel. How many love Jesus today? You love him? I can almost hear you in Lakeville, Elk River, Maple Grove, Spring Lake Park. How many love Jesus? And some people were shouting it from their tree stand today. I love that. It is so great to be back together again. We are in the middle of our series, Entrusted, and we're building our house, letting the Lord build our house. Amen. As we talked about last week, there's a great safety and comfort in building our house on a great foundation of trust in the Lord. And today is a special day. It's a day in which we come together knowing God's taking care of us, that he's going to help us touch the world. And to catch a vision for something beyond ourselves, locally and globally, and thinking about what God can do through you, your family, and then also through us as a church. And we believe that a miracle would happen, that if we all participate, we give what God puts in our hearts, and it's not just financially, but we essentially say, God, what do you want to do through our life? Man, something powerful can happen, a miracle can happen, and that's exactly what we're anticipating today. And I have the honor and privilege of reintroducing to you a friend of Emmanuel, Joe, who is our friend and partner and leader in all of Eurasia, making a massive difference. He's coming back to Emmanuel, and would you give him a great big welcome from Emmanuel? We love you. Thanks for coming today, Joe. Good morning. It is such a privilege to be with you guys today, and it is the joy of my life that Jesus, the King and Kings and Lord of Lords, called me to participate with him in his mission. I've always said, don't ever feel sorry for a missionary unless they're a sorry missionary. And a sorry missionary wants you to feel bad for them because they have to go overseas and they have to do hard things. Don't ever feel sorry for a missionary. It is a privilege that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords has a place for us and allows us to participate with him. It is a joy to participate with Jesus. Can somebody say amen? I want to read from uh, John chapter 9, and I am just so grateful for churches like Emmanuel that, that love Jesus, love his kingdom. You love your city well. You love the world well. I am just so grateful to be a part of this moment with you. John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. Now, this is very important. He didn't become blind. He was born blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It's pretty hard to sin and cause blindness if you were blind from birth. How many of you can say amen? <laughs> Sometimes our questions aren't really thought out, are they? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him as long as it is day, we must. Everybody say with me, we must. We must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. I don't encourage you to try this when you get home. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Wow. This is Jesus doing incredible things in ways we probably wouldn't have done it. But this is Jesus. 
So the disciples have a question, and it is an age-old question that we've been asking for generations. What is the cause of suffering? Who's to blame? Is it God's fault? Is it the man's fault? Is his parents' fault? Is it society's fault? Why is there so much suffering in the world? And when we see suffering, our first instinct is to determine who's at fault. And the reason we want to know who's at fault is because if I can determine who to blame, I can determine who's responsible. And if I can determine who's responsible, I can determine, do I actually need to care? Is this something I need to care about? When we see a war in Israel, when we see Israelis dying, when we see Palestinians saying, who's to blame? And if I can determine who's to blame, I can determine which side I need to care about. Who's to blame in Ukraine? Is it a Ukrainian fault? Is it Russian's fault? Who's to blame for all the suffering today in Sudan? Who's to blame for all the suffering in Yemen? Who's to blame for all the suffering around the world? And what we're really trying to get at is this question, do I need to care about the people involved? Do I need to care? And I want to tell you today that Jesus loves every Ukrainian and every Russian. Jesus loves every Jew and every Gentile. He loves Israelis. He loves Palestinians. Jesus loves every man, every woman, every child on the face of this earth. There is suffering in this world, and every point of suffering is an opportunity for the people of God to intersect with him so that God can show his glory in the midst of difficult situations. And we as people need to get out of the blame game, and we need to get in the healing game. Can somebody say amen? When we see a homeless man we just have to determine, is he there because he's lazy or is he there because he has mental illness? I can tell you it doesn't matter why he's there. What matters is that God wants to show his glory. You see, we live in a moment in history that the kingdom of God is here, it is now, but not yet. The kingdom of God was inaugurated with the death, the resurrection of Christ, but it's not come to full completion. It's not in fullness yet. We live in the in-between times of history that the kingdom of darkness that was reigning and Jesus Christ stepped in and said, no more. Now I am the ruler. I am the ruler of the earth. I am the one who brings light in the midst of darkness. But in the world, sin is still ruling and reigning because Jesus has been inaugurated king, but you and I are called to be the heralds going out into all the earth proclaiming the kingdom of God's here. It's on the way. Healing is on the way. Hope is on the way. Until the moment that Jesus returns to establish his kingdom in all the earth, well, there'll be no more suffering, no more pain. There will be light and no more darkness. Jesus Christ will rule and reign over all the earth. But until that moment comes, we live in this in-between time that darkness is still there and we are the light called to go out into that darkness proclaiming the rule and reign of King Jesus. And that's where we live today. So the real question is, 
not where suffering has come from. Suffering's in the world because of sin. There is death in the world. But what we do know this, Jesus did not create death. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. But Jesus came to give life. He came to give life. There is no darkness in Christ. There is only light. But because of sin in the world, there's darkness. God didn't create death. God did not create darkness. He came to bring life. So I can't tell you why there's wars. I can't tell you why there's suffering. I know the root issue is sin, but why is it happening? Who's to blame? What I can tell you is how we respond. And how we respond is this. We walk into the midst of darkness. We as the people of God walk in, and as Jesus did in verse 4, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. I don't know if you noticed this, but we and me usually don't go together. We must do the works. And so if you have a King James Bible, you'll see that many translators, as they were translating the Bible, this was confusing to them that, that he used the words we and me. So in the King James, he says, actually, I must do the works of him who sent me. In the New Living Translation, it says, we must go and do the things that he has called us to do. They're trying to match the pronouns. But actually in the Greek, it says we and me. And this is the point of it. We don't have a mission. Jesus has a mission. And he invites us to participate with him in his mission. He invites us saying, listen, I don't need you. I don't actually need your strength. I don't actually need your wisdom. I could actually do it without you. But I not only love the world, I actually love you. And I want you to participate with me in seeing the kingdom of God ruling and reigning in all the earth. I've often asked God, God, why us? We are notoriously unreliable. God, why would you pick me? Haven't you seen me? God, why me? And the only answer I can give you is love. I found this phenomenon. When my kids were really young, like four and five-year-olds, they always wanted to help with every task. And once they got old enough to help, I couldn't find them. How many of you found that phenomenon? I mean, when the grass needs cutting and you have a four-year-old, they're always available. When they're 15, you cannot find them. And when my four-year-old son comes toddling up and says, Daddy, can I help you cut the grass? What's the answer to that question? No. You're all liars. No, you can't help. <laughs> There's nothing you can do to add to this task that's going to help me. Everything you do hinders me. It slows the task down. I can't drive it as fast. I have to redo it when you go to bed. No, you can't help me. But what do I actually say to my son? Yes, because I love my son. Even though he has nothing to offer, I want him to know you're my son. Participate with me. I want you to grow 
in this wisdom. I want you to grow in this strength. So yes, and I want to tell you, God could do it much better. He could just send Gabriel down, blow a trumpet over Minnesota, and everybody know that Jesus is Lord. That'd be a lot easier. He could just send Gabriel down over Sudan today, over Israel today, blow the trumpet and declare the kingdom of God. But God is not using angels today. He uses me and you, sons and daughters that aren't equipped and aren't very smart and aren't very strong and don't have much to offer, but it is the love of God that God loves us so much that he invites us into participation with him. Man, you should thank the Lord every day. You should never pray a, a prayer again that starts with the words, God, please don't. God, please don't send me to India. God, please don't make me go to Africa. God, please don't make me preach. Man, you should every day as a small child be running up to your father. Daddy, can I help you? Is there anything I can do with you today? Can I participate with you today? There's some scriptures that, that leads us almost to stoicism. You know, stoicism is just acceptance. How many of you did Bible quiz? You know, Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And if we're not careful, verses like that can get twisted in our head to mean, hey, bad things happen. Don't worry about it. God's going to do something good. Oh, there was an accident. Your loved one died. Hey, don't worry about it. God's going to do something good. Your child got sick. Hey, don't worry about it. God's going to do something good. That's not what Paul is trying to say. Actually, if you read Romans 8, 28, in the Greek, the verb that he uses for work, and I'm going to see who's awake this morning and see if you can determine what the Greek word means in English. The Greek word that is used for work is synergio. Now, how many of you could imagine what Greek, what English word we derive from the Greek word synergio? Man, you guys are on it this morning. You're linguist. Synergy. So, the working of God is not done independently. It's not done outside of us. It doesn't happen by chance. Let me tell you, good things don't happen by chance. Good things happen when God works in and through his people to accomplish his good. You see, if you're going to really dig deep, what the author is saying is, God works in and through us to accomplish his good in all the earth. Wow, that's deep. It. God wants to work in and through us. And I want to tell you, good doesn't happen without our participation. Homeless people don't get fed by us hoping for good. Refugees don't get served by us hoping that something good might happen. Good things happen when the people of God participate with him in seeing his good works accomplished in all the earth. That's God's plan. God doesn't do it without us. Why is it that a third of humanity has yet to hear the gospel of Christ? It's not because God doesn't care. It's not because God's not able. It's because we don't participate how is it possible that, that as we are well-fed and living good, there are people right here in our town who are suffering without hope today? It's because we're not participating. I want to tell you, God is able to do it all. 
But God chooses not to do it without us. He chooses to do it through us. So that great responsibility is also a great burden that we have to carry. That God, I am your hands and feet. I am your grace extended. God, you want to use me to show your grace to hurting people around the world today. You are asking me to participate with you so that you can show your goodness in and through me. God, I am available. Use me today to bring good into my neighborhood. Use me to bring good into the school system. Use me to bring good into my city. Use me to bring good into Argentina and into the Arab world. Use me to bring good into India. God, use me to bring hope and healing to the world around me. We participate with God. He's calling us into participation. I'm the least likely. When I was 20 years old, I was an alcoholic. I grew up in a broken home when I was a teenager. One morning I woke up and uh, I went to school, came back, and my mom was gone, and I didn't see my mom again. She just left. A few months after that, my dad met somebody else, and he left. And I was home, and I was filled with rage and filled with anger and brokenness and self-loathing. I turned to alcohol, turned to drugs to soothe the pain. But then one day, Jesus came, and he changed my life. He changed my life. I came to a church just like this and I heard the message of Christ and I took a step forward and knelt down and he transformed my life. But Jesus wasn't just saving me. He was, he was looking through me for a participant to show his glory and his kingdom in all the world. Three months after I got saved, I was asked by a pastor to preach. I preached my first sermon three months after I got saved. Without me knowing it, the pastor went in through the town, and he found my mother. He found my brother and my sister-in-law. He found my grandparents. He brought them all to church that Sunday, and I preached the gospel. And in my first sermon I ever preached, my mother came down and gave her heart to the Lord. My mom is a teacher teaching Sunday school right now in South Georgia. My brother and sister-in-law gave their hearts to the Lord, and my brother is a deacon in a church today. My nephew is now a missionary serving on the field today. My father ended up giving his heart to the Lord and pastored the last three years of his life. I baptized my grandparents before they die. Why? Because the God who saved me was asking me to come and participate with him in his kingdom work. Salvation is not an individual thing that God is simply wanting to do for you so that you can go to heaven. It is God doing kingdom work in us so we can participate in his kingdom to see his kingdom established in all the earth. God invites us. And the same God who invited me to participation with him to see my family coming to the Lord, invited me to that same participation around the world. And I have seen God in place after place. He just keeps showing his glory. He just keeps showing his glory. God shows up. God intersects. God transforms. He invites us into this participation. But there is, there's an urgency to this thing. In verse 4, he ends by saying, night is coming when no one can work. Night is coming when no one can work. I want to tell you, today is the day of salvation. We don't know what tomorrow brings. We don't know what tomorrow brings. 
Years ago, there was talks in Ukraine. The church leaders were meeting together. How are we going to grow the church? How are we going to expand? And all of a sudden, night came. And it's hard to work at night. In Israel and Palestine, I was in Israel the week before the attacks happened. We were meeting with church leaders. We were talking about expansion. What are we going to do? Night came. Night came. I have served in a country in Asia for almost 30 years, and in that country now, we have workers getting thrown out on a regular basis. We have pastors who are sitting in prison today. There is governmental oppression like never before. Night is coming. But I want to tell you, we do not fear the night. Because Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So what that means is light bulbs are created for darkness. You have the light of the world living inside of you. Your new creation is for a purpose and it is to be in dark places. You were not created for the church. We come to church to get recharged so we can go out and leave our kingdom destiny in all the earth. You come here so that God can give something inside of you so you can go out there for your real purpose. The problem is a lot of light we have, we only shine it on each other. And bright light is good until you shine it in one another's eyes and then just everybody goes blind. And for most of the history of the church, we've just gone around shining lights in each other's eyes. What do you think about this scripture? What color do you think the pew should be? When do you think we should meet? What does church look like for you? We're just shining lights in each other's eyes. Your light was not created for the church. Your light was created for dark spaces. And God is looking for people who will go out into the dark spaces. We need to be the kind of people, don't ever leave a neighborhood because it's bad. You go into bad neighborhoods. <laughs> don't ever leave a situation because it's dangerous. You say, wow, that's what I was created for. I was created for this dark moment so that God can show his light through my life. For some of you, this may be hard to wrestle with, but... We have thousands of believers in Gaza. Thousands of people who love Jesus who are in Gaza today. We have thousands of people on the West Bank who love Jesus today. After the attack, there were over 12,000 Gazans who were day laborers who couldn't get back into Gaza and they had nowhere to go. So some of them quickly went into the West Bank to find somewhere. In one of the cities, they were near 5,000 Gazan who couldn't get back in. They showed up in this little city on the West Bank where we have a house church network. And the house church network said, wow, what an opportunity. This is what God created us for. And so they started taking these refugees in. They started feeding them. They don't have a program. They just started sharing food with them. Whatever we have in our house, we share with you. There's thousands of us, thousands of you. We got enough. We can share with you. They started sharing with them. And then they realized, wow, these people are going to go back one day. So carpenters started teaching people how to do carpentry work. Welders started teaching people how to do welding. Said, hey, soon you're going to have to go back. And you need to know how to rebuild your home. And so they started helping them. And out of those 5,000 refugees, hundreds of them have come to Christ in just the last few weeks and the kingdom of God is being established because of people who are participating with Christ in a dark moment. They're not running from the dark moment. They're not excited about the dark moment, but they're allowing God to use them in the middle of a dark moment. 
Some of you, the reason you've never seen miracles is because you've never needed one. You just don't need it. You just need to put yourself in moments where you need it. I was living in a broken country in South Asia where you couldn't openly preach the gospel. And the only way I could figure out, I ran an English school. And the only way I could figure out to get out into villages was I started a soccer team. Because every village where we live had a soccer team, and they always challenged each other to play soccer. So I started a soccer team, and I started telling them, started challenging villages, hey, our school will come play you. So we started going all over the country playing soccer matches with villages. And there's two or three of them are brand new disciples with me. And every, night, every time after we played a soccer match, now in Laos, I'm a giant. In this country, I'm like, this, you know, everybody's this tall and I'm this tall. I don't know how to play soccer. I know how to play football. So I played soccer like football. So there'd always be this one quick guy. Every village had one quick guy. He'd come into the middle and, you know, he's like, he's dribbling, doing good. And I would just knock him down. They'd give me a yellow card and he came back slower next time. So that's how I played soccer. And so at the end of at the end of playing one day, we're sitting around, we're eating, and I start sharing my story. I was an alcoholic. Jesus saved me. He delivered me. He set me free. And as I'm saying this, one of the guys said, hey, there's somebody in the village that's as messed up as you were. You should go over there and see if your God will do that for her. And I said, absolutely. We'll go. And so he takes us over to this house, and it's me, and I've got two of these guys on the team are brand new disciples. And so we go in, and he says, oh, he tells the father, hey, these guys said they can help your daughter. He said, well, everybody else has tried. Might as well let them. You can go in the back. And I'm thinking, you know, she's depressed. I'm thinking she's got teenage issues. Maybe we can counsel her and pray for her. And so I walk into the back room, and when I come through the door, there's a girl, a teenage girl. She has chains on her hands, chains on her feet. She's chained to the wall. I step into the room. She turns and spits in my face and starts to curse God. And she's lunging, trying to get a hold of me. For 30 minutes, I prayed as she is spitting and cursing and lunging at me. And after 30 minutes, I walked out and I told the guy, hey, I was ready for a counseling session. I wasn't ready for this. <laughs> so I said, I tell you what, I wasn't ready. Give me three days. I'll be back. So I told these guys with me, three days from now, we're coming back. You better get ready. So they said, what time will she meet you? I said, come in the morning. We'll pray. Four o'clock in the morning. They're knocking at my door. Saying, let's pray. And we started praying at lunchtime. I said, you want to eat lunch? Nope, we're not eating until we go back. We're fasting. We're seeking God. And we prayed. And three days later, we go back and we prayed for three hours until she started coming down. We were able to unchain her. We took her to the home of one of the new believers and we started praying. And for over 30 days, every day, 24 hours a day, somebody was sitting there, somebody was praying and somebody was worshiping. And then finally, God broke the chains off of her life. She's a part of a church today. She's married today. She has life today. God God specializes in darkness. And too many times we don't see the miracle because we don't need it. We just go to the doctor. We just pay the money. We just, we just intervene. But God is looking. There is night coming. And when the night comes, you better have the light. You better have the light. Verse 6. Verse 6. So why don't we do it? Why are there so many wars? Why is there so much darkness? Why is there so much pain? I mean, we got a good church. Why don't we do it? And it's simply this. Work is hard. Work is hard. 
Verse 6, after saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Do you know why there's so much darkness in the world? It's because we don't want to get muddy. We don't want to get messy. We, want to, we don't want to get down there in the spaces where healing happens. We don't want to get in the spaces where healing happens. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but broken people never have problems at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Nobody ever has a problem at 3 p.m. But come 3 in the morning, everybody has a problem. <laughs> and we don't see healing because it's uncomfortable. It's not convenient. It always seems to happen when I'm ready to go on vacation. Why do you have a problem now? The game's on. Don't you know Michigan is playing? This is not the right time. The game's in the balance. And we don't see healing because healing happens in the messy, dirty, inconvenient, uncomfortable places of life. And if we as a people are going to participate with God in healing, we're going to have to participate in the mud. We're going to have to participate in the spit. We're going to have to get down where people are and say, God, we're right here. We're with you. God, somebody needs to be on the ground working and bringing healing in Israel and in Palestine today. Somebody needs to be on the ground bringing hope and healing in Ukraine and in Russia today. And I am here and glad to tell you we have people on the ground who are doing it today. We have bombs flying in Israel on both sides, and we got people living on both sides. We got people living in Palestine. We've got people who are living in Israel today. We have people who are living in Ukraine today. We have people living in Russia today. Why? Because neither of them are our enemies. They are just friends of God who don't know it yet. God doesn't have any enemies. He just has friends who don't know it yet. And we have to be the people in this world. We don't have enemies. We just have people who don't know yet that they have a father. They don't know yet that they have someone who has invited them in as friends. And we are the people who go into the world and proclaim there is healing. There is hope. Come and be a part of God's healing kingdom. But it's messy. It's messy. Years ago, I used to go out to this village area, and I would preach in this village area. And it was a long way. It took me two days of driving, 12 hours a day, two days of driving to get to this village. And so I would drive to this village area. For two years, I did this. I was gone almost two weeks out of every month for two years. My wife said it as a, we're dealing with darkness. My wife said it as a pattern. She would fast every time I would leave the house. And she would break her fast the day I walked back in the house. She was participating, joining in. We got, we got to pray. We got to fast. We got to seek God. We, we, we need God's intervention. Two years I did this. Not one person was interested. Nothing happened. We actually saw a miracle one day. We saw God miraculously heal a man. And he just basically took a picture of Jesus and put it beside his other gods and said, oh, that's great. Now I know who to turn to if I need healing. Nothing happened. After two years, other things came up, other opportunities. I started doing other things. Other people were interested. And then one day, 
this family showed up at my house. They told me their story. There was a brother and two sisters. The sister said I was sick and I went to the hospital. And while I was in the hospital down in the city, there happened to be a Christian nurse. She prayed for me and gave me a Bible. The brother said, Jesus started coming to me in my dreams. He started speaking to me. So we started seeking. And so I started asking people in the village, hey, do you know who Jesus is? And nobody knew who Jesus was. There knows church. And then one day, one guy said, you know, there used to be this guy. He, he's a white guy, and he used to come to our village, and he used to preach. And I believe he said he was from this certain town. So if you go to that town, I think you can find about Jesus. So they show up in my town. The first shopkeeper they went to, they said, hey, is there a white guy in your town who tells stories about this guy named Jesus? They said, absolutely. He lives on top of the hill. And so they showed up at my house. They knock on the door and they come in. I said, why are you here? And they said, because we want to know Jesus. And I started preaching and the other sister hits the floor in a demonic rage. And they said, oh yeah, and our sister is sick. And I said, well, I can see that. So we prayed for the sister. God delivered the sister and they became the first fruit of the gospel from their entire people group. The brother became the first pastor. Both of the sisters now are married to people who serve in the kingdom of God and God is growing his kingdom. But because of persecution, they couldn't even live in the valley. They tried to go back, and there was great persecution. And then after about five years, finally, the father came to the faith. And because he was old, they couldn't run him out. And he just kept preaching the gospel. And every time I visited, man, he just loved Jesus. Then a year after he came to the Lord, they called me up, and they said, our father's sick. Come to the hospital. By the time I got there, he was dead. Man, kingdom work is messy. It's just messy. And so where they lived, there's no burial ground. The city said, you can't bury him anywhere close to us. We don't want him in the city. So we had to go up over the hill on the backside of the mountain, and we dig a grave. We have to do it the same day. There's no embalming. There's no, we got to do it the same day. So we go, and we dig a grave. We come back. We're all muddy. We get cleaned up a little bit, and I do a service with the family. And now we got to carry the body back there. And as we get ready to go, a hailstorm starts. I mean, it is golf ball-sized hail. We got to bury him. We can't take time. So we're holding the casket over our heads now, trying to keep from getting knocked out as we're going to the gravesite. By the time we got to the top of the hill, the hill had started, now it started raining. And we're going down the hill, sliding and sloshing. By the time we get to the gravesite, we're just wasted. I mean, just wasted. I'm covered in mud. And we get there, and all the rain and the hail has called the hole to, to cave in that we have dug. So now we have to sit the casket aside and we have to start digging again. We get down in the mud and we start digging. And finally, after about an hour, we get this thing dug out enough where we could put it because we have leopards there and leopards will dig up the body if you're not, if you don't bury it deep enough. And so there's all these challenges going on. So now I'm standing there and it's like I'm covered in mud. And I'm standing there. I've lost my friend. I've lost a little hope. Man, God, weren't you going to use this guy to build your kingdom? And the family is broken. And so my wife hands me my Bible, and I say, Jesus, I need your help to give hope to this family. And I started to pray. And as I pray, I looked up, and just for a second, there was a sliver of light that broke through the clouds. And I've asked people, his son-in-law, I asked him later, I think others actually heard it too, but I heard it. I heard rejoicing like I had never heard before. It was like a concert came booming through the clouds. And I realized in that moment 
the great vision of Christ was being fulfilled. That one day around the throne of God, every tribe, every language, every people, every nation are going to worship Jesus. And that day, in that moment, for the first time ever, there was a people represented around the throne of God, worshiping God in a language that had not been heard in heaven before. And Jesus was receiving the reward of his sacrifice. Kingdom work is messy, but God invites us into that kingdom work with him so that he can establish his kingdom in all the earth. It's time to get messy. It's time to to put your life into upheaval and say, God, what do you have for me to do? One of the projects that we're looking into is in Calcutta today. Our work in Calcutta is led by a 70-year-old widow. She was born and raised in that country. Lived for Jesus in that country. 12 years ago, her husband died in that country. Everybody said, come back. She said, no, Jesus has called me. And now she is in the city of Calcutta, establishing an outreach center so that the kingdom of God, the light of God can shine in a dark place. And God calls us all to participate. Some of us going, all of us giving, all of us praying, but everyone has a part to play in seeing God's kingdom, in seeing the light of God, in seeing healing and hope coming to all people in all the world. And God is inviting you today to participate. So what I want you to do is right where you are, just lift both your hands as a sign of surrender to the Lord. God, today, we surrender our life for your kingdom purposes. God, whatever it would be, God, we want to be a people who participate. And we don't want to be a people who just participate with money. We're going to participate with money because we know you can use it, Lord God, for your kingdom. But we want to be a people who participate with our lives. So God, we open our lives to you today and we say, God, show us blind people in my neighborhood. Show me those who've been blinded by hurt and pain in my school, at my job site. Show me, Lord God, people who are blinded in war and in death today. God, show me how I can participate with you. God, open doors that I can run through to see your kingdom and seeing your light shining in all the earth. God, we open our lives to you today to participate with you in seeing light dispelling darkness around us. Let it be, we pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us. We pray that you are encouraged and blessed by today's message. Check out emmanuelcc.org for faith resources, how to get plugged into the community, or to join us live on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. We are so excited to see what God is going to do. The best is yet to come.